And what was your relationship like with Roy Keane? And they would beast us on a Saturday if we didn't have a game. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a very difficult question, to be honest. No, I need an answer. Uh. Hey everyone, welcome to the So Close, So Var podcast. It is our debut episode. This is a podcast that dives deep into the compelling and often emotional stories of people in football and sports. Today, we got Gavin Donahue with us, first team sports scientist at Shabab Al-Ahli. What a great, I just met you, but I think this is the perfect way to kick off the episode. So welcome. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for coming in, Gav. And of course, we got... Go on. Okay, we've got Benjamin Allison over here and my twin brother... Joshua Allison. We've, uh, as uh, Sahel said, across the podcast, we're going to covering loads of different sports elements. We're not always going to have football side of things. We'll cover different sports, people in sport, around sport, fascinated, passionate by sport as well. So we thought with the first episode, have someone that we know, Gavin. I've known you for probably what, seven, seven, eight, eight years, years I would yeah. say. We've worked together. Um, yeah, one of my best friends. So I'm really happy to have you on the podcast. Awesome, great to be here. So I thought the best way to kind of kick things off, because obviously this is the start. Let's talk about your starts, how you started off in football as well. Mm-hmm. I know you're Irish, obviously, um, starting off at Cherry Orchard as well. How did football kind of come about within your family? Quite natural progression, actually, from being... I started playing competitive football when I was five. So I was playing on my brother's team under eight. Yeah. And I'd always get 40... No, not 45 minutes. It would have been like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. I'd always get half a game off the coach. And then it just started to naturally progress from then. So I'd start, I went on to play for a club called Rathcool Boys, which was a few leagues below, but I was only playing there from, say, seven, eight. And then Cherry Orchard is known as being one of the best youth setups in Ireland. Facilities are terrible. Infrastructure is terrible. Coaching standards are quite good. Even now? Yeah. Even now? I know that was probably yeah, 20 years it's, ago. It's but actually even based now? in a really rough part of Dublin. So it's based in Cherry Orchard in, and it's it's a really rough part of them so and it's not far from where I lived it was only like five ten minutes away so um joined them when I was eight eight or nine and you know you start to go through stages where it's really competitive at the highest level of youth football in Dublin it is there's a number of leagues as well uh, in that kind of age category so mm-hmm. we were top of the best league and then you just kind of progressed through um got selected for a district team so DDSL Dublin and District Schoolboys League we play every year, which is like a selection squad kind of set up for the national team. So at 13 or 14, you go, you play in this tournament in Limerick, which is down south of Ireland. All the counties in Ireland put together a team. So like their county team, there's 32 counties. And we go down and we play. And um, we ended up finishing third, which was like the worst thing ever for us because we'd always win it. And we actually got knocked out by Cork. And it was, yeah, we did. We got <laughs> Looks like it still hurts. And I remember, yeah, you know what? I still remember it was down in UL, University of Limerick. And he stayed down there for the week. You're only 13 mm-hmm. or 14 at the time. And uh, I remember every single other team from around the country sat and watched that game. And you're talking to 14 playing in front of a couple of thousand of people and everybody's wow. cheering against you. And we ended up getting beat. And I remember everybody going wild and thinking, oh my God. I remember having a penalty shootout the game before. Mm-hmm. And again, thousands of people watching and jeering you at like 14 rocking up to take a <laughs> Would that be the first times that you properly under some serious pressure yeah. as a kid? Yeah. And... Because to be honest, they just changed it out. 
if, if you weren't playing well, mm. they just change out. So what happens from that tournament? It's called the Kennedy Cup. Naturally progressed. They select a national team from an under-15 national team. I was captain of the DDSL at the time. Ended up going trial and you go on trial and it's every Monday night. So you go club side on a Tuesday, trials on a Monday, train with your club on a Thursday, play on a Saturday. And it's like that for like mm -hmm. the whole season. So it's quite intense. You're training and playing a lot. Well, That's not including like stuff you do in school or anything like that. It's just what you're doing outside of school. So went on, <clears throat> got selected actually to play for Ireland. First game was against Wales on the 15th. And from there, just kicked on. I was captain of under 15s, 16s, 17s, European Championships, Nordic Cup, played away in Iceland. Yeah, been all over. So, yeah. Well, yeah. so ever since eight, you've pretty much been at the highest level of football. Yeah, like kind of within youth, the yeah. within the kind of within the scope of where I can be at the yeah. highest level of football. And how how was it? Did you enjoy the game? Because I know a lot of youth players sometimes when they get that serious football early on, they lose the yeah, you enjoy do. the game you a bit. You do, you do it because people know you as that. It's like your identity of who you are. Yeah. So it's were uh, your parents actively pushing you to do it? Were they always yeah. on top of your training yeah. and your schedules and and you not really into on it? top of you, but like they they you measured on performance in football. So sure. it's like oh yeah, but my dad was brutal. Like my dad was like straight up honest. Good game was oh you did okay today. Bad game was like yeah you were absolutely terrible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, the was, talks in the car right oh back. Oh my god, yeah. mate, the tears <laughs> in the car. Seriously, oh, remember? Really? It. Yeah, like tears in the car. Mm. Oh, I didn't mean to play so bad. But, but would you change that? You need no, that kind of. No, you, you need, need to know someone to say straight. Honestly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I think it's one of them where he kind of knew what was coming, so yeah. he knew that the progression again from that was a step over. Leaving home at sixteen, just turning sixteen, you leave home, you move to England, you live with a foreign family, you live with you know in an environment which is then a really tough kind of competitive environment so people are going at it every day not friends in football it's the oldest saying isn't it mm -hmm. there's no real friends in football and professional football so i think it was just his way of trying to prepare you for that but even going over then i remember still being so naive uh, yeah so just touching on that you mentioned going at 16 you said to england yeah what was that like so i'd been back and forth so i went on trials at a number of different teams in ireland legally you can start going on trials to england for like 10 days a week at a time two weeks at 14 so I remember every single half term from 14 being in England and it's like again the mental preparation to go over like oh you've got a big week this week you're going to City or you're going to Celtic I remember being at loads of different clubs Blackburn, Celtic, City, Sunderland, Charlton oh, the list is I can still yeah mm -hmm. there's, there's a number of different clubs. And then Ben and I know that ultimately probably where you made the biggest influence and biggest impact on your playing career was at Sunderland yeah so I, talk to us how did that move come about was that through a successful trial yeah, you know what it was? I actually didn't do well on trials. I never did well on trials. I always struggled. I always struggled to mentally kind of get my... I, I was quite... Um, I needed to be quite comfortable to play well, you know what I mean? Mentally and kind of like in an environment I knew. So when I went over to England, it was always a foreign environment, a new environment I didn't know, kind of couldn't really settle. And I remember going to Sunderland. It was one of my last trials. It was just turning. It would have been in the October. It would have been 16 in the March. And I remember going over and just thinking, well, this is it. Like, just, just go and play. And I did really well. They asked me back. Did well again. They offered. Uh, they came over to Dublin, uh, signed paperwork with them then in Dublin, and it was uh, just like, oh, you know, okay, well, I'm going now in, in June. Mm -hmm. So even from then, like even when he signed, say, uh, I don't know, he signed and say the March, they're all over you until the June, until you come over. So nowadays it's like, um, it's a seventeens and nineteens in England. Back then it was straight into under eighteen. So even if you were sixteen, you're competing against guys who could be a year and a half older than you. Yeah, when you were sixteen. A year and a half is a huge development stage. So it was, um, 
Yeah. Straight into the deep end, really. Straight into the deep yeah. end. And, and, and at this point, you're away from family. New yeah, place, yeah, you move, new location. Uh, new location, yeah. new home, new start. Sunderland. Sunderland. How is Sunderland? Sea. Awesome. It's I'll tell you yeah. what, seaside. seaside it's a beautiful town. place. Northeast is, is the best. Northeast, North, northeast is amazing. So okay. like, it really yeah. is. People, people underestimate it. I, I still feel at home when I go there. I mm. went after after football, of course. I went to university in Newcastle, so I stayed up there for a period of time. But it's a, it's a great place. It really is. And I lived right in the seaside. People, you know, it's just a great mental space for you to have as well. But you need to get away from things. It, it was awesome, yeah. I enjoyed yeah, it. And during your time as Sunderland, you played under some very, very high-profile coaches as well. Yeah. Who would you say, well, give us that experience of playing under different managers as well, but also maybe who maybe taught you the most or the harshest or anything like that? Yeah, we had um academy director was a guy called Jed McNamee. So I still think Jed is still there. But Kevin Ball, who was ex Sunderland captain, was just out of his playing days. He'd only stopped maybe two or three years from playing championship and Premier League football. So he still had kind of a quite an aggressive mindset. Um, so Ball, he was there. Um, and, and to be honest, he was probably the biggest influence on everybody at that age. It was like trying to turn you into a man as quick as he could because mm. even though we were playing under 18s, you're still going to play in resis as well. So say like reserve team squad would have only probably had six or seven young lads in it rest of the boys were in the first team and then the reserve team would have been built up from say six or seven from or maybe five or six from the first team and then the rest would come from the youth team so i remember i went over in the june my first reserve team game was in the october and then i played like 12 or 13 reserve team games that season but reserve teams back then were men you're playing mm -hmm. against men mm -hmm. at like a young age so but it was to be honest it was it was him it was kevin richardson ex everton he was reserve team coach at the time yeah he was brilliant. And I think I actually played better under Kev than I did under Bali because just Bali was just hyper, hyper on you, aggressive, you know, um, wanted everything perfect, where Rico was more just like, crack on, go play a game. Gave you the freedom. Freedom, yeah, yourself. freedom to be calm before a game. And I was like, oh, okay, this is more me. Mm -hmm. And they actually had a meeting with me at the end of the season. I was like, we don't understand why you're playing better for the reserve team than you do for the 18s. And I was like, management styles. So... Mm -hmm. Now I understand different management styles take completely different with different players. Yeah. And um, yeah, we had a pretty good youth team over there. We had a, we had a tremendous youth team. Anyone in particular, that, like anyone who went to progress their careers in Premier League football? Yeah, yeah, we had quite a few on our team. So we'd, a lot of lads went on to play League Football, League Two, League One. And then, of course, we had Jordan Henderson, we had Jack Colback, we had Martin Waghorn, we had Jordan Cook. To make the, names. The, 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 the youth team that came the year below me that came through was incredible. They they were incredible. So my second year playing under 18s, we got the the, the way the Premier League kind of worked then was you'd north and south. So under 18s north, under 18s south, and we ended up pr progressing on. We ended up getting to the final. Actually missed the penalty in the final against Leicester. You did, yeah, yeah. yeah. big penalty. Who's that against? Sorry, <laughs> I, I nearly hit the ball out of the stadium. To be honest, who's <laughs> it against? Sorry, Leicester. Leicester. Who do they have? I think I played that day. Max Gradle played against me. Yes. Yeah. yeah so a good player, Max. Winger. Yeah. yeah it, it, in those moments where things don't really go according to plan you sky the penalty how did you deal with that mentally it's a difficult moment yeah it's a, yeah. It's a level of shame especially like mm. when you're that young because you're still only 17 18 yeah. you're still trying to create your own identity in football mm. and people are, people just judge you on performance there's no other judge on human characteristics there's just performance in football which i think people develop at different stages as well in football so like somebody at 18 okay great example is like Rooney at 16 was a man where there's a lot of guys coming through at 21, 22 now, and they're only developing, where some guys don't even get the chance to get to 21, 22 in professional football, mm -hmm. get offloaded, and then they're sitting in the doldrums of football for a while trying to show people how good they are. So they go th through that trial process again, 
which can be extremely tough. It's a, it's, it's a tough industry. People don't realize how tough it actually can be. Yeah, I think yeah. that's one big challenge in football is like, it's so one dimensional. Yeah. So everything comes down to your performance. If you're, and I've been through this too, when you're playing well, things are cool. But as soon as your performance on the pitch, you get injured, something doesn't go according to plan. You go home and you have nothing else. You have nothing yeah. else to fall back. And I don't think the system is structured to kind of teach the young kids to have other things in life to fall back on. Not at all. Yeah, I fully agree. So. And you're a perfect example of that, obviously, alongside this. And we'll come back to, obviously, the, the influence other managers and coaches had on your career, namely at Sunderland as well. But you prepared yourself away from football as well with your uh, education side. You've got degrees. You've got, obviously, you're a master in sports science and everything. And and um, and that's positioned you very, very well where you're at in Shabab al-Ahli. So would you, would you recommend that a lot more focus is... is Put on the education side as well. Of course, yeah. I think um, I think what happened to me was second year at Sunderland. So second year would have been still playing under 18s reserve teams. I got a big injury, so I'd have been out for about seven months. And I pushed myself heavy into the education at the time. I was like, right, well, <clears throat> if this doesn't work, what have I got? My brother was at university, you know, um, kind of gave you somebody to look up to to go. Well, you know, if you go to university or whatever, you you get something at the end. It's not like you just fall out of it and you have nothing to hold on to. Um, so I did quite well, finished my school then, so you finished school at 18. At 19, you become a pro, so like you sign a professional contract, you no longer have to go to school. Um, but I always had one eye kind of outside thinking, I need something else, I can't just have this as my identity, because if you have that, it's like if it all falls apart, what else have you got? Yeah, not a lot of people have that, or footballers nowadays have that sort of vision and foresight as well. They Once they leave or they suffer a serious injury at a young age, they haven't got anything to fall back on. Yeah, and I know guys who, I know guys who have been around the game for not around the game, who fallen out of the game, say, seven, eight, nine years ago, and they're still kind of figuring out what they are, who they are, what they do. And I think that's an important thing as a man growing up. Everybody's trying to figure out who you're, what your identity is, who you are, where you fit in. So if, if you've worked for something since, you, as I said, eight years of age, you get to 19, 20, it's like everybody's looking at you going, you're going to be some superstar, and then it doesn't work out. It's like you're trying to rebuild your own identity at 20. So it's it's really tough. It's uh, and if you don't if you don't move quick in that stage, you can find yourself going non-league. You know, nothing wrong with going non-league, but you also need to support if you have a family, if you have kids, if you want to do that thing, it's difficult. Yeah, you have to tough. have a a plan B as well. You have to have a plan B, and I'd, I'd fully say to anybody, and I'd even say now, like unless you're like top top level, I'd be looking at like university routes and scholarships. I wouldn't even be looking at like going into an academy system. Just going back to obviously, you, you've played alongside an amazing caliber of players. You mentioned Jordan Henderson, for example, playing alongside him. Could you ever envisage the tra trajectory that he went on, you know, achieving he's a Champions League winner? Did you see that at the, those early stages? Could you see those it's glimpses a, in players? You know what? You, you, look at, you look at Jordan when he was younger and you think he wasn't, wasn't the biggest, wasn't the strongest. I think he was the last Elvis Hall age category to get picked. He's one of the youngest in his age category as well. So within that year, it's from September until the following August. I think he's born in August. So he has like nearly a year less development than most lads of his mm -hmm. age category. But his level of resilience was incredible. It's his mental side, isn't his it? His mental side was just incredible. Like, you know, he could have a bad game and he'd still puff his chest out and go, okay, I'll just do the next one better. And it, it was always that way, like that kind of... He always knew he would be a footballer. It, it's weird. When you spoke to Jordan, there was no other route that Jordan would have had. It's also the same as Jack Colback. I also think Jack is a tremendous footballer. I always thought Jack was one of the best players I ever played with kind of guy you give the ball to and he just doesn't lose the ball yeah mm -hmm. you know um but it, it, those type of guys just have a, a hyper resilience mentally it's like okay i will get there and you look at what jordan's done you know he, he went to 
went to Liverpool, had the option after a year and a half or two years to go to Fulham. They wanted to offload him. He said, no, I'll stick around. Ends up becoming captain. It's just not surprising just how his mindset is, yeah. That's a great story. Yeah. In terms of going back to the managers and things like that, Roy Keane, he's obviously... Yeah. Be, you've been under him as well. What was yeah. he like as a, as a coach and a person? Yeah, I went away. So, um, funny, became a third year. I had a really good end to my second year. Um, became a third year, become a pro. Um, ended up playing a... Reserved, not a reserve team game, first team game uh, pre-season away in Hartlepool. We actually played Hartlepool away at their place uh, in the summer. Came on at half-time, did quite well, I thought. You play centre-half, it's quite, a, it's quite, you know, it's a position where you can't really risk with a young player, but came on me and Stanislav Varga. I don't know if you remember Stan Varga, he was huge, centre-half, played for Celtic and stuff. Did quite well alongside him, and then I thought I was still going to be in the reserves, you know. They were going pre-season one place, first team were going pre-season to Portugal. And I remember somebody going, your name's on the list to go to Portugal. I'm thinking, what? Went wow. down, checked the list. Oh, okay, I'm going to Portugal tomorrow. Great, you know, you go down to Portugal. Probably the toughest week, of, a week or 10 days of training I've ever had. Honestly, it was brutal. What did you guys do down there? It was just like, it was just the intensity. When you step up that again, it's, it's the intensity of training. It's the physical output that they want from you every single day, relentlessly. So, mm -hmm. like... Uh, you know, you're going, you're, you're running in the morning, you're, you're training in the afternoon. I remember honestly just going from training to lunch to bed to training to bed yeah. to dinner to bed. And I think it was a good adaptation. And it's kind of like what I try to bring into, like, push into young players now is application. Is, is like that's what your craft has to be if you want to be at the top level. Um, there's two of us who went, me and Michael Kay. KZ went on to play for Tranmere and stuff. But we went down and I remember spending 10 days there, came back, um, was on the bench against Juventus, didn't come on against Juventus, played there, uh, sorry, we played them in a, I think it was pre-season friendly, 1-1, and then we went to Ireland again, so I got selected, got to Ireland again, so I was doing well in training, um, everything was going well, went to Ireland, played in two or three games in Ireland, so it was against, I think it was against uh, Bohemians, Cork City and Galway United, played against Cork and Galway United. Came on at left back in midfield. I'd never played there in my life, but I came on and did all right. Had you always been a defender? Growing um, up, yeah, always yeah. played centre half. But you always hear the stories. For example, Andy Carroll started as a left back and finishes yeah. as a number nine. For example, did you ever have that transformation, or did it change much in your playing career? No, it was only as I got older I started actually think I could play in different positions. But I always felt that I was too small to play as a centre half, especially mm -hmm. at that level, and I was wasn't quick enough to play as a full back. Yeah. So I probably should have played as like a six or something. You know? sure. <laughs> Transfer market has you down as 180 centimetres. Is that true or false? Yes, true. Is it? Yeah, about 180. I'm not that big, mate. I'm more like a square. Um, <laughs> You're a 180. As wide as I am tall. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, it was... Um, so going on from that, end up um, starting the season. Reserve team captain, score my first game, play Newcastle actually. Yeah. So uh, you scored, I was waiting for you to bring that up. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think it was Tim Krul and goal, I think. Mm -hmm. At St. James's Park? No, Stadium of Light. Okay. Uh, so, all right, you're starting, you're thinking, you know, and the we used to get a lot at our reserve team games. We get like six, 7,000 at our reserve team games, especially against Newcastle. So thinking, I'm flying here. Like mentally, I'm flying. I'm on cloud nine. And then we play Everton away, do really well over there. We, we, we beat Everton, Rezies. Um, I get called up to go down FA Cup against Luton Town. So we're on the bench against Luton. I'm just about to come on. Right back, actually, which is funny because I never played there. Greg Halford gets sent off, so I'm warming up. Greg, you can't come on, Greg's just got sent off, so I'll go sit down again. You're like, okay. And then next week we go United away, I'm in the squad, down at Old Trafford. It's like, wow, this is incredible, Like this is real deal stuff. 
when did it really hit you that you know you're playing in these amazing stadiums, Stadium Live, you don't Old Trafford? Right. That's the thing. You don't. You just take it in your stride. You just, you, it's just a natural progression. It's always happened since you're a kid, so you just start to naturally think, "Oh, this is normal." When it's not normal, like you don't take in the actual appreciation for it all mm-hmm. until you get a bit older, and then you get put on such highs, and then when it all falls apart, you have such lows. It's like, mm-hmm. "Oh, I'll never get back there." You know, that was the best time in my life, and this, this was this, but. Yeah, and then it all started to just go downhill. And what was your relationship like with Roy Keane specifically? Nobody had a relationship with Roy Keane. Okay. Nobody has a personal relationship with Roy Keane. It's, it's Obviously, we see this stern persona that we all have come to know, even on Sky Sports now. You see how I he is. I don't think but Roy Keane has a relationship with Roy Keane, I'll be honest. I think, <laughs> I think it's like, one of the, he's just a, he's a, he was a difficult character. I think it was his first major job in coaching. Still don't think he could transition away from the United factor of like, we were Manchester United, we need to win everything. He was come to Sunderland where we were trying to hold on in the Premier League. Um, and he was trying to instill that kind of, you know, trying to instill that kind of um, culture. culture. Yeah. Which is not wrong. I agree. Like you need to instill a culture and a winning culture. But again, you need the players around. Do you think there was an element of frustration? Obviously, you hear of these stories where players at the top of their game come into management. You think of Zidane, for example, or players of his ilk when they get into management the players aren't quite up to his expectations or his standards do you think maybe there was an element of that with Roy Keane that people weren't at his level of yeah because he would join in training and he'd be the best player in training (laughs) and he was retired you know he didn't realize how good he was his passing his movement his intensity of everything he did so yeah it was it was that season uh, after after I don't know probably 10 or 12 games in the reserve team we played against Blackburn away at Ewood Park and we got destroyed I think it was four or five one we got beat so you're playing centre-half, you've conceded five. And he was at the game because it was close to his home. He used to go home for like three days in a week. And um, the two wingers had played for them who were absolutely, they were quality. And they went on to have good careers as well. Um, and yeah, I just remember after that game, it was like, okay, that's it. Do you think that was the moment? That was the moment. I yeah. Knew, yeah. I remember, you know, it's funny. Jordan Henderson came on in that game, came on with about five minutes to go, smashed somebody. A bad tackle, smashed somebody, and the only thing Roy King could talk about in the dressing room because he sat all of us down was, was him tackling somebody. Yeah, oh, he showed this to come on, and like, is, is that the only thing you can actually appreciate? He goes out on loan to Coventry about a month later, plays for Coventry 14 15 times in the championship, comes back, goes straight into the first team. He wasn't even playing for the reserve team, so that's what confidence does for you. Confidence mm-hmm. just elevates your game completely, uh, or it can you know, if you have no confidence, you just you completely forget how to play mm-hmm. football. You talk about. Henderson going out on loan there, were there any loan opportunities for you? You mentioned that that was the start of the end, let's say, at Sunderland. Yeah, you know what? Any loan opportunities to kind of... Yeah, Keane ended up up calling me into the office one day and he said, uh, we've got an option. I think he was trying to be nice, to be honest, because I think he was going to release me. Okay. And I think he was saying, oh, I've I've spoken to somebody at Shamrock Rovers, and Shamrock Rovers is about 10 minutes from my home in Ireland. Um, They wanted to go on loan till the end of the season. And you know what? I probably should have went, but I was thinking if I go back to Ireland... I'm never going to go back to England. Did you feel like it was a step back at that point? Yeah, I did. Because I I felt like I could have kept going. I felt like... um, Or that you'd you'd work so hard to get to England, for example, and establish yourself. I didn't... First of all, I had had a girlfriend in England. I had kind of set my life up. So you've moved to a different country. You start to set your life up around friends, everything. And I didn't want to go back home. It was like, I don't want to go back home to live in my mum and dad's house again. You know, I I didn't want to do that. So... And then I think it was about a week and a half later he told me, "Well, we're just going to offload you. We're going to release you." Um, so yeah, that was a it was a tough. And what the first steps? When, unfortunately, when you get released in that situation, what what's the first things you, you're kind of thinking of? Call, call my mum and dad. 
you call your mum and dad. I remember where I called my mum and dad was from one of the bathrooms in the club. I just went, listen, I've been let go. Uh, contract ends 30th of June. What do you do? You know, you don't really, ha I had an agent at the time, but he wasn't very active and he wasn't very good. Mm. And you, you just kind of on your own then. It's like, where do you go? Which I think now they've started to really change that because people don't understand the, you know, what happens to kids mentally when that happens. And you're talking 19, it's not like you're 29, you're 19, you're still yeah. only a kid. Um, and now I was speaking to a good friend of mine at Newcastle and he's saying they've got like five welfare officers in the club and the kids can go and approach them and speak to them if they have any issues or things have been said to them in training and whatnot. We never had any of that. Once you were offloaded, that was it. You were not playing again. You might play for the 18s a little bit or you might play for the reserve team. But it was a, yeah, it was a tough place to be for four months because I think it was March I got let go and my contract finished on June 30th. And that's you. It's it's what you see on TV. It's like you literally pack a ball of stuff in your locker, put mm -hmm. it in a plastic bag, and you leave wow. the club. So at that point, when football is literally, literally like everything you have, and it just gets cut just like yeah. that, uh, where do you go to? Because right now you mentioned like they have that support, right? Yeah, and they're, they're it's implementing all changing. That, sort of. Yeah, it's yeah. all and it has to change because there's too many kids who come out and they just don't have that, you know. M you know, mental health support, and I, mm -hmm. I do remember coming out, going on vacation with my brother, going on a holiday, being like, "Well, what's next? Like, I don't know what's next. I don't know what I'm gonna do." Because you come out with, I came out with a B Tech. I didn't really have an option to go to university or anything yeah. at the time. I didn't have any clubs coming in, because nobody knows either. You're going back to 2008 when social media wasn't really there, LinkedIn wasn't there. Mm -hmm. There was nothing where you could kind of contact people directly. It was literally phoning people. You know, oh, I've played here, I and mean, when you're 19 without any league appearances um it's it's tough because everybody's like oh you're still a kid you, you don't you're not going to go play in league two or league one or conference because everybody needs older more mature players nobody's taking a risk on a 19 year old 20 year old center back so it was it was like okay where's my next kind of entry and that's where the Glen huddle academy came along yeah because my dad actually found the letter i got the letter as the invite it was in chelsea it was in cobham it was in chelsea's training ground in london and um, dad found the letter while I was on vacation and I came back from vacation and okay, I was 19, I had a blowout, you know, you, you, your whole world is falling apart really and you're like, oh, you go away, you start drinking, whatever. Came back and he was like, what's this? And I was like, oh, I'm not interested in that, I don't want to do that. Didn't want to play football at the time, hated it. And he was like, no, no, booked my flights, went over, it was like a four day trial process, there was hundreds of people there. Uh, sorry, at Chelsea? Yeah, in Chelsea. For, for yeah, yeah, yeah. Academy. And uh, they pulled like 20 of us in. And me and another Irish guy, Christy Fagan, he had a good career, to be fair, Christy, in the League of Ireland. And they, they went, 20 years are going to go to Spain if you want. And we all, straight away are thinking like, okay, we're getting paid for this, we're not getting paid. We did at the end. We, we got we got a couple of hundred euros a week. And it was great. It was just like pocket money. Gave us a place to live, all our food. But we trained and it was, it was tough. But that's actually a place where I learned most about football. It's funny, I always say this, it's the place where you go down and you get proper coaching. You, you learn how to work technically as a footballer, left foot, right foot, different situational stuff, playing against Spanish teams. Spanish teams are very, very technical. So it's not like in England where it's route one because the pitch is wet and the grass is crap and like it's mm -hmm. all these. It's like you learn how to become a footballer. And that was that was a really good experience. So just to be clear, with the Glen Hoddle Academy, was it invitational only? It was basically a coming together of unattached or released players at yeah. that point, wasn't it? And yeah. then you, you all get together at Cobham was there a, a trial process then to go into Spain? Because you were in Spain for quite some time, wasn't yeah, you? Yeah, I was in Spain for about nine months. Yeah. Yeah, I spent nine months in Spain. Um, it was great. We'd play against, you know, your top academies in Spain, your reserve teams and stuff. But 
It was a great. They, they were trying to bring players in, reintegrate them reintegrate into the system. Them. Yeah. Maybe maybe lads have been released. Glenn's whole thing was lads have been released. They went through kind of an apprenticeship. You went through like four or five. Some lads have been at clubs like James Simmons, who's at Chelsea now. Is I think he's 18's coach. He'd been at Chelsea since he was seven years of age. To let them go at 20, they've put 13 years investment into somebody to offload them. Sure, he has a set of skill set that he can be utilized somewhere else. Yeah. Um. So there was a lot of us there. Uh, like at that time, 20 of us or 21 of us. Where in Spain? Uh, Jerez, which was like yeah. south of Seville. Good yeah. pronunciation. Man, good. <laughs> there, you speak Spanish? No. no. <laughs> I can understand quite a bit of Spanish. It's just yeah. trying to put it out at the same speed as somebody yeah. who speaks to me. Yeah, so how was your time in Spain outside of football? Because I, I had a couple months in Madrid where I yeah. played football there. And the lifestyle outside of football is crazy. Yeah, yeah. So did, did you have any... Yeah, we did. We, we, had a, we had a good culture, to be fair. Glenn was yeah. very old school because we had Nigel Spackman there. We had Dave Bessent there. We had like really old school coaches. So it was like Saturday nights were thing, boys. Sunday's off. Go and enjoy yourself. So we'd be rocking yeah. in like five, six <laughs> That suits you down to the ground. Suits me down to the ground. You know, <laughs> recover on a Sunday, but make sure you turn up for training on a Monday. And they yeah. would beast us on a Saturday if we didn't have a game. I mean, like it was... It was mental what they do. And I think from a sports science perspective now, I'm yeah. like, oh my God, that's just, that shouldn't be legal. <laughs> just running you until you're like getting sick and stuff. But it was, it was a great experience, yeah. And it's funny, we, I, remember, I remember rocking up down there and one guy, Tommy Bean, and Tommy now owns Castor. No way. Yeah, ah, yes. so him and his brother founded Castor like three years after leaving Spain. And I'm like, Tommy, like, this is incredible. Like, you're a co-founder of Castor. How have you done that from not playing football? Sorry, from, from playing football to going and, and doing that. It was, it was incredible, mate. That's insane. Yeah. I didn't know he was part of that group yeah. because there were some other players who did manage to get themselves reintegrated into yeah, catch, league football. Yeah, you had You uh, had know, Simo. Was gone, but a lot of lads have gone back in coaching roles or same like myself, like myself sports science roles. Mm-hmm. But, um, Do you think that nine-month spell in Spain almost, it was the make or break you, I think at that point, did you, learn whether you loved football or not and went, wanted to stay in it yeah I, you know what i deferred the scholarship opportunity at northumbria that year and i remember speaking to paul johnson at the time who was the director of football at northumbria and i just said listen can you give me a year and he went yeah no problem so it's deferred for a year um and i remember that was like it was great because i was like i'll have something to go back to if this doesn't work so maybe it worked in contrast as well maybe it was like okay if i had just football it would have been like i'd give everything but i knew i had an opportunity to go to uni at the end so I was like, okay, maybe I'll go that way. Yeah, fair enough. How did Dubai come about? My mum and dad moved here. While I was at university, first year of university, dad gets let go from his job in Dublin, gets offered a role at Emirates as an engineer, and they came down. And then, you know, it's 2008, 9, 10, 11 in England. It's like recession time, recession's bad. Even trying to get a job, even trying to get a normal job in anywhere was difficult at the time because, you know, recession and stuff. So... Came out in 2012 and I was like, oh, I'll go down and see what it's like. Came down. Been here ever since. Been here ever since, yeah. Yeah. So we've worked together at some stage as well, but now most recently, obviously, last three or four years? How long mm-hmm. have you been at Shabab Al Ali? Four. Four, to four years. Yeah. And they're flying right now, aren't they? Yeah, top of the league. Top of the league. Top of the league. So today, while you've been a part of the setup, talk us through some of the honours and the titles that you've won, because, I mean, I know that you've, you've had a lot of success in your time there. Yeah, yeah, we've done well. I've been, I think I've been involved in eight finals, won five of them. So I've won the President's Cup twice. Not me, players have won it. Like I always think, I can't say you've won it. Like I mean, you take part it. in the training session just yeah, as much as them. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> but um, we've won the President's Cup twice. I've won the 
Etisalat Cup twice, which is now, I think it's changed the name of Etisalat because the sponsorship's changed, but it's like the League Cup. Yeah. Won the Super Cup. During COVID, we were top of the league by seven points and then they cancelled the league, which wasn't great. Um, it was, I think it was one of the only leagues to cancel the league. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, we were seven points clear in the March and then it was like, oh, no more league. We and that's because c- COVID wiped it out. COVID wiped yeah. it out and now we're currently one point, but but one point at the top. But let's see where we go. Do you think in any way the injuries that you suffered during your playing career had any impact um, in the direction of you going down the sports science route? Yeah, I think it did. I always took an interest. So I went back, that's when a second year of university, I went back and did an internship. Like It was like a, a placement, you'd say, for like six weeks or eight weeks at Sunderland with the sports science department. Kind of got a feel for it then. It was funnily enough because Kevin Ball was still U team coach and a lot of the staff were still there that I worked under. And I remember one thing that really annoyed me at the time was Ball, he said to me, he goes, if it was up to me, I would have given you another year. And I'm sat there like thinking, oh my God, you know, if, and I always think if somebody can stay in a professional football environment until they're 21, 22, you'll have a career. You'll have a career at some level if it's like League Two, Conference, whatever, you'll play. But when you're getting offloaded at 19, it's a big difference between 19 and 21, 22. So I was always like, you know, if I'd have had that extra year, what would have happened? Would, I, would it have been completely different for me or whatnot? But um, yeah, I went down, went down, went to the placement with the 18s and reserve team, really enjoyed it. And I was like, okay. You know, stay stay in the sports science side. Yeah, and what's your role on a day to day basis? What do you do with the players? Oh, varies, varies. You got injured players coming back from fitness, uh, return to play criteria with them. So you bringing them back, kind of getting them up to the speed of what the team is doing. Manage all the data for the team, so all the GPS data, weights, body fats, um, anything to do with fitness testing in the gym. Manage all of that. Um, currently working with a coach who also has a he's a degree in exercise science so he kind of has a good awareness of what we try to do um and it's, it's just maintaining kind of trying to keep 30 plates spinning at the same time it's the best way i can kind of describe it within mm-hmm. the football team you've got 30 plates spinning and you've got to keep them all going making sure everybody's ready to play so if lads haven't played in six weeks or five weeks or they're sat on the bench they still have to be able to pl- start a game and be able to give out the same level of fitness so it's managing that it's like trying to keep all the loads at the same level yeah, so talking about, obviously, your time at Shabab, you've been there four years, worked under or worked with a series of different managers and coaches, mm-hmm. most recently, in, and, and to date, you're working with Leonardo Jardim, who, I've just pulled it up, serial winner across Europe um, mm-hmm. in 2016-17, he won Ligue 1 with Monaco, obviously, coaching Mbappe and Bernardo Silva at that time, mm-hmm. won Manager of the Year, had a lot of success uh, in Greece with Olympiacos, so... Obviously, there'll be a lot of lessons that you can take with him being in the same dressing room. What kind of influence has he had on, on you, for example? Yeah, he's, a, he's unbelievable. He's the best I've ever seen work. And this is like from even when I was younger to now, he's the best I've ever seen work, uh, hands down. Staff are tremendous. Like all the staff are pro-licensed coaches, but they're also really good human beings. I think, that, I think that's a big thing in football. Like you can have all the qualifications in the world, but if you're not a good human being, then... You know, people don't take in information. People don't people don't buy into you effectively. But Leo is a uh, he. He just knows what to do when and the right things to say at the right times. He's a mental monster. Like he wants to play. It doesn't matter who we play. He wants us to approach the same the same way for every game. If we play Halal, which we will in like two and a half weeks, or if we play Dibba like we did on the weekend, he just wants you to be on it all the time. He's he's like, I'll give you time off, no problem. I'll give you days off. But when we train. We train at, at a really high intensity now versus what we have done under different coaches. 
but he is... Um, so you train like you play, essentially, now. Yeah, but even even the physical output from this season to last season and the season before, and the season before since I've been there, is like is way, way more. And that's credit to you and the work that, the obviously, the social, uh, the yeah. sports science and the, yeah. and the physical we, department. You know, it's, it's funny, like, we used to always, with, with different coaches, because what would happen is, say, a coach bringing his own physical coach, I've got to try to develop a relationship with him, work alongside him, you know, kind of figure out what type of physical coach he is. You get a lot of old school physical coaches just want to run players and, you know, that's how they think they get their fitness. So you got guys who are heavy heavy in the gym. They want to push boys in the gym. This guy is all about the pitch. So it's all about what you do on the pitch will translate into game. And to be honest, this year we've had the highest physical output, the lowest the lowest amount of soft tissue injuries. And we get a lot of, we're getting a lot of contusions and we're getting a lot of kicks and stuff because boys are just flying, you know, flying into tackles. And we've got, I think, in the last game, when we played Charger last week, we finished the game with seven players under the age of 23. So we've got a really young squad as well. So I think that kind of helps with the physical output. You've got young boys, energetic. He's offloaded quite a few out of the squad who he doesn't want, and he was he was straight up with that from the beginning. But it's, um, it's, it's great to see. It's really good to see how he just manages different personalities as well and uh, manages his staff, manages everybody in the club, I think a big thing in a club is not only managing what's below you, it's also managing what's above you. So, mm. you know, boards of directors and everything, he's, he's really good with them. So he, he's, he's top try. You can understand how he had four or five seasons in Monaco. You can understand how he's been. He won the Asian Champions League with Halal. He's in Olympiacos. He got sacked when he was top of the league. Um, where else has he been? I think he was in, he was in Portugal. He coached in Portugal at a decent level. You know, he's, he's, he's a mental monster. He's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, most recently, obviously, Al Hilal, Monaco, Olympiacos, and then some spells in Spain, uh, in Portugal, rather. Mm. So, yeah. having gone through the the sort of development process within Europe, and seeing, as you mentioned, Shabab Ali have a bunch of young players coming through as well. What are the main differences in terms of the structure and the pathway between what you see in Europe and what you see here? I think they just get a hold of players quite a lot younger in Europe so they're, they're a bit more serious I'd probably say I'm not saying it's not serious but I'd say the development on a coach in, in Europe is, is probably higher they're, they're on top of the players from seven, eight, nine years of age I'm not saying it's right but I'm saying players learn the game a lot quicker um, in Europe than they would here um, we get a lot of lads come through who in all honesty like they still need a lot of development at 21, 22 uh, because we have a quota that we us- usually have to have yep. in the team so they, they'll play but a lot of them need a lot more development, in my opinion, from a younger age uh, all the way through. But I think it's starting to change, but it needs to be kind of like a, a league-wide thing where it comes through all the clubs. It's no good doing it at two or three clubs. It has to happen all across every club. And that's that's a big big ask. It's a big ask to change it. If you look at Qatar, Qatar have a spire. It's kind of managed from a spire down. Um, and that's why I think they get more players coming through at a higher quality. Yeah, sure. And also, like you mentioned, with the UK, if, if people fall out or get released to, from a top club at a young age, they might still have the opportunity to play League Two conference as well. If a local player falls out of one of the top pro clubs here, what have they got to to go to? We haven't got the, the pyramid system as much here. I mean, it's growing. Mm-hmm. It's definitely growing. But do you still see people maybe get released at an early age, but they've, they've got nothing to turn to? Yeah, like uh, we, we've let go of some young players at Shabab. I think it's it's natural in football. Pe- people come and go. You can't keep everybody. Um, a lot of them go play in the second division, which is the league below us. Mm-hmm. And they do well. They play for different teams in the second division uh, because, again, they have that quota of players that they have to have as locals. Um, 
But yeah, it's up in the first division, which is the second league. Yeah, second league, yeah. first division. So, um, yeah, it's it's one of them where I think they'll if they have a good enough agent, they'll find a club, they'll fall in somewhere. Um, and even now the third division, there's, there's people playing the third division. There's quite a lot of locals, I think, playing in that as well. So there's always stepping stones for them here, and I think it's I think it's great to be honest for the development to give them the real opportunity. But it has to start, in my opinion, when they're younger to really develop them as professionals. If they're going to be professional, they have to be professionally mind as well. Yeah, one thing I've noticed here in Dubai is because you've seen Europe, you've seen Dubai in the Middle East, and I've kind of seen aspects of it uh, as well. And I've seen a lot of the youth kids here, they're very soft in like trainings and games, and their mentality is not quite the same as you might find in Europe. And I think a lot of it comes down to just a lot of the kids are well off and they have so much given to them, so young. So once they're in team training and there's a, there's like a hard tackle to put in, they don't quite go for it. And I've kind of noticed that pattern pick up here, which I think tying that into also not having the high level youth development from a young age. I think once you start getting to that 17, 18, 19, that's when there's a huge, huge level separation. Have you noticed that in terms of yeah, the I locals and then the yeah, foreigners? I, I do agree, which I think it's, it's one of them. Most, most top players in the world, if you ever look at anybody who's played at a top level, they come, they come from you know, uh, the poverty area. They come from an area yeah. which is not so well off and they that's all they have. They've so gone through hardships. They, they have to go through that, like, this is all I have type of thing, where if you, if that's if that's not all you have, it's easy to go, oh, I don't fancy it today. I don't need to train, like, like 100% today. So you can understand it. You can, you can understand it, you know. Uh, His Highness here has created an environment for these, you know, for the local people to have uh, an incredible life. So, you know... What, why, why do you need to effectively go a million miles an hour, hurt yourself, push, play through injury, play through... It, 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 there's no need. So mm-hmm. sometimes that can translate into, into sports as well. Yeah. So as a, as a sports scientist, your perspective, do you get into like the mental side of things at all in, in terms of your relationship with players? Of course, yeah. I speak yeah. to a lot of players. Yeah. You know, I, think, I think now getting older, I think I can give them a different viewpoint on where they are. Um, same with Leonardo, I don't know, let's go back maybe eight weeks ago, ten weeks ago with one player, give you an example, who, great talent, not from the UAE, great talent, but at the same time, Leo said, bring him in in the morning, speak to him, work with him a little bit individually, you know, I think it's not due to me, but just due to trying to transition his mindset into where he is and what he's doing. It's easy for young players to fall away and be distracted and whatever, but trying to get that focus, and to be fair, he's back in, he's doing really well at the moment, so... Um, yeah, of course, I speak to players a lot. And, and sometimes players need a conversation one-to-one. And I kind of work in those realms where I'm not part of the coaching staff. I'm not senior management in the club with like directors and whatever, but I can come down to their level. And I think that's important for any coach to come to the level of the player that they're with and be like, get on their level, speak to them, and kind of understand the mental position that they're in. Because it just takes a little change. As I said earlier about confidence, it just takes a little change for somebody's whole mindset to change in the field. And then once that starts to roll, once that ball is rolling, it's very hard to stop. Yeah, fair enough. Where is Gav going to be in five years' time? Where do you want to be? What do you want to have achieved? I don't know, you know. It's, um, you don't have to have it all mapped out, do you? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think opportunities come, and when they come, you've got to take them. Um, you can't plan ahead too far. I think it's just enjoying the moment. Is that because of the nature of football? Yeah. That it's so unpredictable, it's so cutthroat, ruthless, yeah, that sure. we don't know where anyone stands around this table in the sports industry, you know, in five years' time, two years' time? Uh, again, contracts in football are 
you know, year to year or every two years. So it's like five-year contracts don't really exist in my industry um, and what I do in, in kind of sports science and stuff. But who knows? It's a good story to date. Um, question from my side in Gav Donahue, the movie, who plays Gav? <laughs> that's, that's a very difficult question, to be honest. But I need an answer. Uh, I'm not really up to date with all these actors and stuff, to be honest. Uh, I don't know. Like, Josh pulled out Colin Farrell before. I only say Colin Farrell because <laughs> he's Irish and also he does a bit, you know, he w- manages his weight and he blew up for... Um, not for the penguin, not like you'd have to blow up massively. For, for cheers, you, cheers, mate. He's calling me a fatty over here. Thanks, man. <laughs> no, it's uh, I don't know, to be honest. Mate. I don't know who would play you in a movie. I've heard Shia LaBeouf a few times, yeah, yeah, just yeah. for his method acting, but also on likeness. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but I've had Shia LaBeouf, yeah. You both look a little bit like Shia LaBeouf, okay, yeah, that would be mine then, yeah, okay. <laughs> who plays Soho? That's a good one. So, someone good looking at it now, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> possibly. What do you do for fun? Fishing. Fishing? Hmm? Yeah, that's my go-to. That's my Out on the jet ski, fishing. Out on the jet ski, fishing, yeah. Got a jet ski, which I go fishing on. Or I'm out on a boat, like I was on a boat yesterday morning. That's my outlet, that's getaway from that's everything. Nice. We got to go fishing, I've never been. Never been? Never been. Okay, we'll go fishing. So I don't know if we'll fit all four of us in your jet ski, though. No, definitely not. No, we got a boat. We go, <laughs> we go okay. We'll tag team it. Yeah. You, you wouldn't want to catch any fish, man. No, I'll be there. I'll drive the jet ski. You'll drive the jet ski, that's yeah, it. Yeah. But no, it's, um, yeah, fishing, mate. I like to go, relax, be with my dog, be with my wife. Chilled, nothing crazy. Really, really chilled out. I like being at home. Yeah, yeah. it's a good vibe. We'll have to do it. Any final thoughts? No, all good from my side. I actually, one more thing. I noticed on your transfer market um, profile, <laughs> come back to that. Yeah, <laughs> the, there was a few details here. Obviously, your date of birth, your nationality, your height. I was surprised with 180, but you've seen, you've seen confident, confident that it's 180. That. Um, your highest market value according to transfer market was what? About what? 10 pence. <laughs> it was in January 2008 and it listed you as 100,000 euros. That's Agree or that. disagree? Will somebody give me 100,000 euros now? <laughs> well, that's what I said. Could have been. That's 2008, 100 grand. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, take that. Yeah, fair enough. No, that was, that was, that was my final thought, so. I'm going to be the least expensive player you'll ever have in this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're the first. No one will take that away from you. No, I enjoyed it. Awesome. Awesome. Gav, thanks so much for coming on. I think it was a really cool perspective from the playing career, the story, the ups and downs that people don't often get to see or hear about, right? So cool coming uh, to share that. And then also you're doing some awesome stuff with Chanel Valadie. I'll speak um, to you guys in May, hopefully. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah, we'll yeah. have to have you back on once you win the title. You can bring the trophy. Once you win the title. Bring the trophy on. We'll go for some fishing as <laughs> well. I don't, I don't. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Sahel, why don't you tell everyone how they can find us? Yeah, so uh, podcast so close so far. Check it out on Apple, on Spotify, and then also we are going to be on Instagram. Instagram and YouTube. So you can, you can watch, watch you can listen YouTube. in, and uh, make sure you check it out because we're going to have a lot of interesting stories. So thank you guys for tuning in. Drop a like on the video if you enjoyed. And we will catch you next time.